please open your Bibles to Matthew 27, Matthew 27, verse 62. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 27, 62 through 28, 15. There are some things that are so powerful and so dangerous that the best course of action is to simply try to contain them. I think perhaps the best example of this sort of thing comes out of the Chernobyl disaster of 1986. I believe I've shared this with you once before, but during a routine test on April 26, 1986, reactor number four at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant near Pripyat, Ukraine, experienced a power surge that triggered an emergency shutdown. Unfortunately, that emergency shutdown failed. In the words of one source, the attempt to manage the surge in power and the alarming increase in the core's temperature caused an even larger power surge. Control rods that are used to manage core temperature were inserted too late. Their insertion into the hot core caused the rods themselves to crack and fracture, locking them in place. Heat and power output continued to rise until the water that was used to cool the entire reactor vaporized, generating massive amounts of pressure. The first explosion from the steam inside the reactor was strong enough to send the four million pound lid of the reactor assembly through the roof of the building. Now catastrophically damaged, the remaining cooling water from broken channels seeped into the reactor as well, turning directly into steam as it touched the increasingly hot nuclear fuel rods. A second, even more massive explosion followed shortly after the first, belching broken core material into the air, spreading fire and radioactive debris. With a glowing heart no longer shielded by tons of steel and concrete, the core could no longer be cooled. It began to melt. The result was the worst nuclear accident in history, and it's not even close. For some comparison, the only other nuclear accident to reach what the International Atomic Energy Agency labels a level 7 accident was the 2011 Fukushima disaster because these are the only two nuclear power plants to ever experience an actual meltdown. Uh, but as bad as the Fukushima disaster was, Chernobyl released approximately 10 times the amount of deadly radiation. Before it was all said and done, the Chernobyl plant would also spew radiation over an area roughly 10 times larger than the area affected by the Fukushima disaster, eventually displacing more than 300,000 people. In fact, the disaster was so far-reaching that sheep as far away as northern England and reindeer all the way up in northern Finland had to be killed off due to irradiation. Now, the term meltdown isn't figurative. The reason these types of catastrophic disasters are called meltdowns is because when they occur, the core of the nuclear reactor becomes so hot that it literally melts down into a kind of indistinguishable lump of highly radioactive material. In the Chernobyl disaster, the meltdown produced a mixture of melted concrete, sand, and core shielding called corium. That is to say, it's the material that melted down, uh, the, of the melted down radioactive core, corium. While the most famous chunk of corium produced in the wake of the Chernobyl disaster is a rather large lump called the elephant's foot because of its vague resemblance to, well, an elephant's foot. <laughs> For some perspective, this lump of corium is so dangerous that, according to one source, if you were exposed to it in 1986 for just 30 seconds, you would be sick from radiation within the week. After two minutes of exposure, your body cells would begin to hemorrhage. After four minutes, you would start to experience vomiting, diarrhea, and fever. And at five minutes of exposure, that's just 300 seconds, you'd have less than two days to live. This lump of corium, which is about two meters wide and weighs hundreds of tons, is so dangerous that even to this day, you would still receive a fatal dose of radiation if you were exposed to it for little more than an hour. This is a highly, highly dangerous stuff. In fact, it's so dangerous and so powerful that you can't really do anything with it. You can't really touch it. You can't move it anywhere. And so starting in May of 1986, less than one month after the disaster, the Soviet Union began constructing a giant concrete sarcophagus over the remains of the Chernobyl disaster in order to try to hold the dangerous radiation in. 
Then in 2012, construction began on a second sarcophagus on top of the first due to the deterioration suffered by the first over a span of approximately 25 years. And it's expected that the contents of the Chernobyl sarcophagus, the elephant's foot and all the rest, will remain this way. It will remain radioactive for the next 100,000 years. Again, some things are so powerful, so dangerous, that this is the best that you can hope to do with them. You can't stop them, right? So you just try to contain them. It's not always inanimate objects. Sometimes it's people. After Napoleon was defeated the first time, he was exiled to the island of Elba, which is about six miles off the coast of Italy and 30 miles off the coast of the French island of Corsica. He quickly escaped from that island and managed to muster an army of around 200,000 men in the span of just 100 days. And so after he was defeated the second time, Allied forces decided they had learned their lesson and instead sent him to an island all the way in the southern hemisphere, thousands of miles from any significant landmass in the South Atlantic, where they left him until he died. Again, sometimes it's people like this that have to be contained. They're that dangerous of a force. Sometimes it's ideas that are dangerous. Of course, there's no end to the number of banned books or banned expressions of speech that have occurred over the years, and this is the sort of things that, that happens under oppressive regimes that fear the implications and consequences of, a, of opposing philosophies or ideas. For Israel's religious leaders, that element was Jesus. He was the dangerous person. He was the powerful idea. He was the thing that needed to be contained. They realized this fairly early in Jesus' ministry. In the Gospel of Matthew, their resistance to Jesus occurs as early as Matthew 12, when the religious leaders respond to Jesus' ability to cast out demons by claiming he does it by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. It then escalates after Jesus first withdraws from Galilee, when they begin to actively send delegations from Jerusalem to question him, starting in Matthew 15. But really, this opposition is there in seed form, even as early as the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus begins his message by saying, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For, and he says, And for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's all stated as a reply to what the scribes and Pharisees were already saying about Jesus. They were already attacking the content of his ministry, and Jesus is responding to their accusations in the Sermon on the Mount. So again, this opposition is really there throughout Jesus' ministry. It's constantly there in the background as Jesus continually readies himself to travel the road to Calvary. And religious leaders have always been threatened by him. But by the time Jesus enters Jerusalem, on the Sunday before his crucifixion, they, they suddenly realize... They have a kind of spiritual Chernobyl on their hands. Jesus' popularity suddenly explodes on unprecedented levels as he enters the city, and large crowds come out to greet him, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! The leaders suddenly realize that they have a, a spiritual crisis on their hands, and it's quickly spinning out of their control. If they don't act fast, this is going to be a level 7 spiritual meltdown. So they enact their emergency procedures. First, they, they plead with Jesus and ask Him to stop. It doesn't work. Jesus refuses, and He continues to perform Davidic signs right there in the temple in the very heart of Israel. So they move to plan B, and they try to challenge Jesus to a debate. They, to, to a debate. they try to publicly discredit Him by openly challenging Him on His positions. This strategy blows up in their face. They only manage to embarrass themselves as Jesus eventually flips the, the, the debate back on them and exposes their hypocrisy. By this point, they realize that the emergency procedures have failed, a full-on meltdown is occurring, and so as a last resort, they tried to implement the one final strategy that they have at their disposal, and that is to bury their problem. They realize that their only hope to contain Jesus is to put him in the grave cover him up with a sarcophagus of stone, bury him in a hole of dirt, just put him in the ground, and maybe then they can suppress his incredibly powerful influence. You see, Jesus, Jesus is their elephant's foot. 
He's a thing that's so powerful and so dangerous that they have to put it in a tomb in order to contain it. And as we ended our passage last week, that's where Jesus lay. Dead. In the tomb. His death was accompanied with signs of tremendous power. The sun was was blocked out and darkness spread across the land. The earth literally shook as he lifted up his voice at the moment of his death. The veil of the temple was ripped in two graves, were split open. When the time came to die, Jesus didn't exactly go quietly. But when it was all said and done, after all the chaos and the turmoil, it was, it was over. He was dead, and things more or less returned to normal. Jesus is neatly placed in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. A great stone is rolled over the entrance, and the religious leader's problem is buried. It's in the grave. It's contained. Now the question is, will their plan work? Will their plan work? In today's passage, we'll discover the answer is a resounding no. Or as Psalm 2 puts it, and I might be paraphrasing here, but as Psalm 2 puts it, ha! (laughs) Right? Ha! That's what Psalm 2 says. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. And it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. The the Lord holds them in derision, it says in verse 4. So the religious leaders have their plan, but it's a stupid plan. It's a plan so stupid that God is sitting up in the heavens watching it all unfold, saying to himself, you've got to be kidding me, right? That's the best you got? For for real? You're, You're serious? That's your plan? Okay, well then watch this. And that's what we're going to see Matthew unfold for us this morning. He's going to show us how the religious leaders try in vain to contain Jesus' influence and how Jesus yet prevails over his enemies. And as I think we'll see, this is going to be an incredible encouragement for us in light of what we're going to study as we close out this gospel together next week. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. Matthew 27, 62 through Matthew 28, 15. Matthew says this, The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the first dawn of the first day, uh, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and, and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Once again, in this passage, we see the religious leaders try in vain 
to contain Jesus' influence. And the way they try to do this is through the suppression of three elements, which if they cannot suppress, will continue to spread Jesus' influence even after his death. Again, these are three elements that are essential to the spread of the gospel. And the first element, let's call it bodium. Bodium. The elephant's foot, of course, was made of corium. Well, our first element is bodium, and this is a reference, of course, to the body of Jesus. That's the first essential element that must be suppressed if the religious leaders hope to stop the spread of Jesus' gospel. Ironically enough, the religious leaders recognize that Jesus' body is crucial to his influence. In verse 62, they approach Pilate, and in verse 63, they say to him, Sir, or, or actually, it's actually curious, Lord. They say to Pilate, Lord, we remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and seal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. In other words, the religious leaders understood what Jesus meant when he said back in Matthew 12, 39-40, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The religious, the, the religious leaders understood that by that, Jesus was predicting his resurrection from the dead after three days. And, and that's rather ironic because it would seem that this is the exact thing that Jesus' own disciples did not understand. I've stated this before. I think there's perhaps some evidence that points to the fact that, that Peter, James, and John probably understood more about Jesus' crucifixion than the rest. But John 20 verse 9 indicates that not even they, not even they understood Jesus' prediction about the resurrection until after he had risen from the dead. The religious, the religious leaders do understand this, though. They get it. They understand that Jesus said he would rise from the dead after three days. And this is important because it means that they understand that it isn't simply enough to kill Jesus. His power isn't limited by his death because he was openly telling people not only that he would die, but that after his death he would rise again in three days. And this means that his influence is not limited merely by what he said and what he did while he was alive. His very body is influential. If the disciples can somehow produce an empty tomb, if they can get his body out of the grave before the end of three days, then they understand that Jesus is going to continue to be a menace even after he dies. So they come to Pilate, and they ask him to give an attachment to guard the tomb for three days. Now, if you're paying attention, this means that they want the guard to remain there until Monday. Matthew says in verse 62, they approach Pilate the next day after the day of preparation. This means that they come to Pilate on Saturday and they ask him to secure the tomb until the third day. That's through the third day. That's all the way up to Monday. Because they understand that if the disciples can manage to produce an empty tomb before Monday, then the Jesus movement lives. Anytime after that point, it doesn't matter. The disciples could produce the tomb on Monday or Tuesday. wouldn't matter because Jesus said that the sign of Jonah would occur in three days. So they're working against the clock here. Even though Jesus is dead, they know they have to hold on for three more days. If they can hold on for three more days, then the whole episode is over. So they want the body itself in the grave. They want it in the grave until Monday because they understand that's the threat. Now, I would just note that they don't make this request because they actually think that Jesus can rise from the dead. Again, at this point, they think they basically have him defeated. There's just this prediction that he made that's still on the clock until the third day, and they're simply making the very reasonable assumption that if they understood what Jesus meant about his resurrection, then surely his own disciples would have understood it as well. And they think that based on this prediction, the disciples might try to steal his body from the grave before the third day so they can keep their little political or religious movement going. They want to put a stop to that. So they ask Pilate, will you give us a guard that will help us secure the body? We want this whole movement put to an end, and we need your help for just three more days before the entire episode is over. 
So that's the issue here. It's the body. They want the body secure. They want it in the ground because they understand at that point, Jesus' continued influence either lives or dies based on the location of its body, on either its presence or its absence in the grave. And just to be clear, they're absolutely right on this point. They're absolutely right on this point. I don't have time, a lot of time this morning to explain why they're right theologically, but I do want to note that they were right on this point. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He then continues in verses 17 to 19, saying, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in in Christ uh, we have hope for this life only, we are of of all people most to be pitied. Paul makes it very clear. The whole of our faith relies on the empty tomb. If Jesus does not rise from the dead, then we've got nothing. You might as well go home and watch football on Sundays. Because that would be a better use of your time than this. It is that foundational to our faith. Once again, the religious leaders seem to grasp this point better than the disciples at this time. They may not understand all the reasons, but they understand that without the empty tomb, Christianity dies here. So they make this effort to suppress the body. The question is, do they succeed? They get the guard they need to watch the tomb from Pilate. They even get a seal placed on the tomb. And by the way, that doesn't mean a seal in the way you might think of seal a bank vault or something like that. It wasn't like they put caulk around the edges of the stone in order to secure it in place. It wasn't like it was, you know, the stone was welded to the tomb. It doesn't mean seal like that. It means seal as in a wax seal or something to that effect. And this is, this is a kind of official documentation indicating that no one is authorized to open the tomb unless they are explicitly permitted to do so by Pilate. You can think of it almost like police tape over the door of a crime scene. It's sealed in that sense. It's saying no unauthorized persons are permitted beyond this point. The religious leaders secure the tomb with the soldiers. They get this seal. But do they succeed? I mean, that that should be enough to keep the disciples out, right? So does that mean they managed to secure the body in the tomb? Well, no. No, absolutely not. They, They fail miserably, but not because they didn't take the appropriate measures to address the perceived threat. They think the disciples are going to steal the body, and in that respect, they do everything necessary to prevent that. But what they didn't account for is that Jesus actually would rise from the dead. And that's what happens here. Jesus actually rises from the dead. And there are no amount of soldiers or seals that are going to put a stop to that. And and I think this is especially true if we consider the meaning of the resurrection in light of Matthew's Gospel. It's like I've said over the past few weeks, the issue at play in this Gospel is, is Jesus' status. His status specifically as the Messiah. The question is, is Jesus the promised Davidic king? And if so, then how are, we to, how are we to live in light of Israel's rejection of that message? Again, the soldiers mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The placard above his head at the cross reads, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The people mock him, saying, If you are the Son of God, come down now from the cross. That's the issue under examination. Is Jesus God's chosen king? And as I explained toward the conclusion of last week's message, The answer to that question matters because of what the Messiah will do when he establishes his kingdom. He's going to judge the earth. He's going to slay the wicked. He's going to redeem the righteous. He establishes peace, but it's a peace established through judgment. And this is a a judgment, by the way, that according to the book of Daniel begins with the Romans. They're seen as the last great world empire. They're representative of Satan's dominion. And the man of lawlessness comes forth from them. So when the Messiah comes, it's their empire that he destroys. When Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people think he's calling for Elijah to come so he can start that process. They think he's calling for God's help to deliver him from his enemies so he can judge the earth. Well, here's the problem. As much as the religious leaders seem to understand that Jesus predicted his resurrection, they apparently didn't understand the meaning 
of that resurrection. You go back to Matthew 12, and this is what Jesus says when he makes the Jonah prediction. They asked for a sign after Jesus had already given many signs. And so Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? The story of Jonah was in no way predictive, right? Like Jonah didn't go into the belly of the fish to serve as a sign of a future resurrection, right? No, the fish swallowed him because Jonah was running from God and the fish was sent to bring him back so he could finish his mission. That's all the fish means in the book of Jonah. It's simply a means to accomplish a particular end. So what does Jesus mean when he calls the resurrection the sign of Jonah? A sign points, right? It directs. It draws attention to something. Well, if Jonah's journey into the belly of the fish didn't point ahead for the resurrection, then what's the sign? What's doing the pointing? It has to be the resurrection itself, doesn't it? it? The resurrection itself is pointing back to the ministry of Jonah. It's designed in order to point backwards to that event as a reminder of that story. Well, if that's the case, then what's it pointing to? Well, let me ask you this. What was Jonah's mission? It was to go and prophesy to the people of Nineveh. That's why Jonah fled. He didn't want to go to Israel's enemies and tell them anything. He wanted God to punish them. He wanted them to suffer. And what was he to say once he got to Nineveh? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. It was a message of judgment, right? He was predicting their imminent destruction. And how did Nineveh respond? They repented. And God showed mercy on them. That's, that's much of what the story of Jonah is about. It's a message about the mercy that God shows even to his enemies, even to the Gentiles, should they, return, should they turn and repent of their sin. Now keep that in mind and listen to what Jesus says as he continues in Matthew 12. He says the only sign that people will get is the sign of Jonah. And then in the very next verse, he says in verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The idea is that the people of Nineveh didn't have half the light that Israel had. And they still repented at the preaching of Jonah, not the signs, not the wonders, simply on the basis of his words. So what does that say about this generation of Israelites if they won't repent? Even, if the, in the, even when the Messiah is in their midst, preaching God's word and accompanied with awesome signs and wonders. And do you know what the resurrection is a sign of? It's not just a sign of hope. It's also a sign of judgment. It's a demonstration of the fact that the Messiah has entered into the world and in the words of John 1.11, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. And so what it proclaims is not just hope, but condemnation. Just as, as Jonah departed from the belly of the fish and declared, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, so does Jesus' emergence from the tomb declare impending doom. Only this time it's not Nineveh that will be overthrown but Jerusalem. And it isn't going to happen in 40 days. It's going to happen in 40 years. See, this is what the religious leaders missed about Jesus' prediction of the resurrection. He was telling them, you misunderstand. Judgment doesn't come before I die. It comes after. The resurrection, therefore, is meant as a sign of Jesus' authority to judge the earth. It's a sign of His authority to destroy all earthly powers and authority. In fact, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus returns in order to submit all things to the Father, quote, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do you understand the resurrection points to the fact that Jesus already, presently, right now, possesses the authority to destroy even the very last of God's enemies that must be destroyed. This means that Jesus is the Messiah and that He can and will judge the earth. The resurrection points to that. I think if the, if the religious leaders had understood that aspect of the resurrection, 
then they wouldn't have tried to secure the body with a few Roman soldiers and a wax seal. Right? A Roman detachment may be enough to keep a few scared disciples out of the tomb, but it's certainly not enough to keep God's Messiah in it. So no, their efforts are not successful. They do not keep the body contained. Jesus still comes out of the tomb. But, but, the story doesn't end there. Bodium is one essential element to Jesus' continuing influence. And the religious leaders fail to contain that. It's out on the loose. But the story isn't over because there are yet two more elements that are still essential to the proliferation of Jesus' influence. And if the religious leaders can suppress either one of these remaining elements, they still have a chance of containing the movement. The second essential element is this. Testimonium. Testimonium. That's a reference, of course, to the testimony of those who saw the empty tomb. So the body is out. Jesus is on the loose. The prophecy is fulfilled. The first obstacle is overcome. Here's the problem, though. By the time we enter into chapter 28, no one knows it yet. Keep in mind, it's not just enough for the body to be raised. The disciples need to be able to demonstrate that it's been raised. They need to produce an empty tomb. And by the end of the third day, they have to do that or it's all over. It doesn't matter if they show up on Tuesday and say, Look, Jesus is not here because Jesus said he'd rise before the end of Sunday. Anytime after that, and the people are just going to assume that the grave's been robbed, not that Jesus rose from the dead. And here's the other problem. Chapter 27 closes with a detachment of Roman soldiers guarding a sealed tomb. And chapter 28 begins with an entourage of women en route to visit that tomb. Keep in mind, they don't understand, these women don't understand at this point that Jesus is raised from the dead. In fact, Mark tells us that they actually brought spices with them in order to further anoint his body. And they don't know that there's a detachment of Roman soldiers there waiting for them. They just assume that they're going to be free to enter the tomb. These soldiers are, 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 are not going to let them enter the tomb, though. They're on assignment specifically to prevent anyone from entering the tomb. So can you see the, the, the dilemma here? Jesus is raised. Great, fantastic, terrific. That's the first thing that has to happen for his influence to continue to expand. But at that point, how is anyone supposed to know this? And how are these women, especially, going to enter that tomb? The stone is too large for them to move. In fact, in Mark, they're actually saying to one another on the way to the tomb, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They know they're not strong enough to move it on their own. And then these soldiers, they're not going to let them in the tomb. And this small band of women certainly isn't going to overpower them. This is a major problem, because if no one can get into the tomb in order to demonstrate that the body is raised, then the whole thing is over. So what happens next? Look at what God does. Verse, uh, verse 1, the women are traveling to the tomb. It's the break of dawn. In fact, John indicates that they left while it was still dark. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake. And the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Well, there's one obstacle out of the way. God removes the stone. He removes the stone, by the way, not to let Jesus out. I say that because in John 20, Jesus suddenly appears in the middle of a locked room in the presence of his disciples. So it would seem that the resurrected Jesus is able to pass through solid objects. This means that the stone isn't rolled away to let Jesus out. It's rolled away to let the women in. So God removes that obstacle for the women. Now look at verses 3 to 6. Matthew says regarding the angel, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come see the place where he lay. You see what happens there? God removes the second obstacle. The guard is set to keep Jesus' disciples out of the tomb. God says, I can fix that. And he sends this angel to neutralize the guard 
so the women can get past. In fact, and this is something I had never caught, I never caught this before until I studied this passage, but it would appear that when the women arrive, the guard is still there on the ground, neutralized. Like the women are walking up to the tomb, and all they see are this angel sitting on a stone, and a mass of Roman soldiers laying on the ground like they're dead. And the reason I say this is because, number one, verse 5 should actually read, the angel answered them and said. The word apokrinomai, which means to answer or to reply, is actually in this verse along with the form of lego, which means to say. So the angel is responding to the women in some way, even though Matthew doesn't say that the women say anything. Then, number two, if you look at verse 1, the women are already en route to the tomb, when Matthew picks up with the earthquake in verse 2. Then you jump down to verse 11, and it seems to imply that some of the guard go into the city to tell the chief priests all that had taken place after the women visit the tomb while they're going away. You add those two observations together, and I think the idea Matthew's trying to communicate here is that the guards are still lying there prostrate on the ground as the women walk up. This is why the angel, answer, this is why the angel answers them, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Come see the place where he lay. The, the women walk up and all they see at first glance is a bunch of dead Roman soldiers at the feet of an angel. And so they're terrified. This looks like Book of Exodus type stuff. Perhaps it would appear that an armed force more powerful than the Roman soldiers maybe came in and, and stole the body. And that might explain why in John's account, Mary Magdalene apparently tears out of there at the first side of the stone without even hearing what the angel has to say. She's just gone. Point is, this is a terrifying situation. And so the angel has to tell them, no, no, don't be afraid. I'm not here to hurt you. I know who you are. You're here to see Jesus. And I've been sent to help you. But he is not here. Come inside and see. And then the picture we have is of these women, these, these lowly, supposedly weak, insignificant women, culturally speaking, okay, Jewish culture at the time, culturally speaking, these are the nobodies of their society. These are the very last person you should ever be afraid of. And they're tiptoeing over this sea of trembling Roman soldiers as the angel keeps them at bay and allows them to approach the tomb, stoop in and look. This is a remarkable miracle. And I think it contains echoes of Joel 2, when speaking of the day of the Lord, God says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Speaking of the final day of judgment, when God comes to destroy Israel's enemies, the prophet Zechariah likewise says, On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. The Old Testament always predicted that God would use the weak to triumph over the strong. And we see elements of that already coming true as these women cross this sea of terrified Roman soldiers. The guard is eventually released, and some of them immediately go into the city to tell the chief priest what had happened. The chief priest realized that there's a major problem on their hands because not only has the body come out of the tomb, but the word's now out. It's dawn of Sunday morning, and there are already eyewitnesses to the resurrection. So they make up a story, and they tell the guards to tell the people they fell asleep and that the disciples must have stolen the body. They bribed the guards with some hush money and promised to protect them from Pilate's wrath, but of course it's already too late. The angel tells the women in verse 7, Go and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. In verse 10, the women encounter Jesus and he tells them the same thing. In verse 11, they're already on their way. So it's too late. Not only has the prophecy been fulfilled, but there are now eyewitnesses to its fulfillment and they're already on the way to spread the word. There's no containing the testimony at this point. The very thing that religious leaders tried to stop from happening has happened. The second element is uncontained. So now their only hope is to try to slow Jesus' influence, is to counter the testimony with a lie. 
This brings us now to the third element in this account. We've already seen that Jesus' influence is dependent on the presence of Bodium. As I say, his body must be resurrected from the dead. We've seen as well the need for testimonium. There must be eyewitnesses to spread the news of his resurrected body. Both these elements are already uncontained, but there's still one critical element that must be accounted for. And that's, I'm going to call it ecclesium. Ecclesium. It stands for the Greek word ekklesia, which means assembly or congregation, congregation. and it's translated in our Bibles as the word church. I think there's a sense in which you could say that this is the most important element in this story. This element is, in a sense, the point of the story, and it's going to drive us to Matthew's concluding point in the Gospel next week. I think of all the interesting details in this account, Perhaps the most interesting one is, not, is, is really who is not there to see the empty tomb. It's not who is there to see the empty tomb or how they enter, but rather who is not there. And that's the disciples. They are not here to see the empty tomb on Sunday morning, at least not yet. And actually in Matthew's account, not ever. He never shares that aspect of the resurrection account where Peter and John run to see the empty tomb for themselves. That's something that John fills in for us later. Here we only have the women. And the reason why that matters is because of what Jesus said back in Matthew 16. Remember Matthew 16, right? You go back to Matthew 16, and what does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says that with reference to, to Peter and the disciples. They are the rock, the foundation upon which Jesus is going to build his church. Don't get me wrong, the testimony of the women is good. That's important. But the women, though disciples, they have not been with Jesus in the way that those twelve have. They weren't necessarily with Him from the preaching of John the Baptist and on. They didn't live with Him in the kind of proximity that the twelve did. They didn't hear all the nuances of His teaching or see Him calm the sea or walk on water. They weren't there at the Mount of Transfiguration. As faithful as these women are, Jesus has really invested himself in those 12 men. They are the ones that he handpicked to be the stewards of the gospel that he wants to share with the world, and they're not here. They're not at the empty tomb. They don't know that Jesus has risen from the dead. This is so fascinating. The, the religious leaders come so close. They come so close to containing Jesus' message. Okay, so the body gets out. The, eye testi- the eyewitness testimony, that's out too. But they have so effectively intimidated Jesus' disciples by this point that they're not here to witness any of it. Most of them are scattered when he was arrested. You know, Peter, of course, kept following for a little bit after that, but then even he fell away. The only one that seems to be present at the cross is the Apostle John. But even he seems to be intimidated in the wake of Jesus' crucifixion. Even he is not there with the women to visit the tomb on the day of Jesus' supposed resurrection. And this means that if the story ended right now, with the remaining 11 disciples huddled in fear of their own lives, you and I wouldn't be here. We're here on the back of their witness. We know what Jesus said and did, not because Jesus wrote those things down, but because Matthew did, and John did. Mark apparently got his account from Peter, and much of Luke's account may have been built on the testimony of what he read in Matthew and in Mark. The apostles are the foundation of the church. But by Sunday morning, they're huddled away in fear of their own lives, unsure of what to do next. The religious leaders got that close to containing the gospel. But look at what happens here. Verse 7, the angel tells the women, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. He sends the women to relay the news of his resurrection and he tells them to inform the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee where they're going to receive further instructions. In verse 9, some of the women bump into Jesus himself and after falling at his feet and worshiping him, he also tells them in verse 10, do not be afraid. 
Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And gives them the same instructions. And, and really, that's what they run off to tell the disciples in verse 11. Not just that Jesus has risen from the dead, but that he's making an appointment with them in Galilee. We're going to see the outcome of that meeting next week. It's the Great Commission. Jesus is going to launch his disciples on a global mission to go and proclaim the gospel from that mountain in Galilee. In other words, as successful as the religious leaders have been in intimidating Jesus' disciples, Jesus still finds a way to unleash them on the planet. He still manages to overcome their efforts to suppress his influence. And when you take a step back, I think you can see that this is really what the whole story is about. You know, structurally, there are three parts of this passage. The first comes at the end of chapter 27 when the religious leaders send this guard to watch over the tomb. That's the crisis. That's the dilemma that has to be resolved in this account. After that, there's the account of the resurrection in verses 1 to 10 and the report of the guards in verses 11 to 15. Within those two events, you really have two contrasts. Uh, first, there is the guard versus the women. The question is, who will win in this battle to open the tomb? The guard or the women? And the answer, of course, is neither, right? God's the one that opens the tomb. He wins the battle. And then second, there's really a contrast between the religious leaders and Jesus. Even after his resurrection, they're still contending with one another. And on one hand, you have the religious leaders and, and their apostles, the guards, trying to broadcast their message, which is that the body was stolen. And then on the other, you have Jesus and his apostles trying to broadcast their message, which is that Jesus is the Christ and He's risen from the dead. And the question that's kind of left hanging in the air as we conclude this passage is, who will win? Who's going to win this epic battle over the gospel? Will Christ's enemies triumph in suppressing His influence? Or will Jesus vanquish His enemies? Will He triumph over them? We already know the answer to that question by this point, don't we? It should be obvious now, right? The religious leaders couldn't stop the body from rising. They couldn't stop the word of His resurrection from getting out. And they couldn't stop Jesus' disciples from proclaiming the gospel. So who's going to win in the end? Who's going to triumph? The answer is Jesus, King Jesus. He will win the day. Right? Jesus wins. He wins. That's what this passage is about. It's about Jesus' triumph over His enemies. It's telling us, look guys, Jesus wins. Now the reason why this all matters is because where you fit in this story. You see, you, you are the ecclesium. You're the third element in this story. The apostles were the foundational component to that element. They were sent so that through their influence, you might become disciples and then in turn go around and go and broadcast the same message that they were entrusted with to others as well. That's what we're going to learn about next week when we get to the Great Commission. They were sent in order to make disciples and those disciples were to make disciples and so on and so on. And the chain reaction extends all the way down to you and I today. That's why Jesus spent so much time with those 11 men. They were going to be the explosive element that would perpetuate His influence down through the ages, even to the present day, nearly 2,000 years after His resurrection from the dead. And now, His influence in this generation is supposed to spread through you. Of course, there's still opposition to this message, is there not? There are still those who say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He was just a man. Now, they may not say that his body was stolen. Their argument may be a little more sophisticated than that. But all the same, they still try to counter the testimony of the risen body by denying the resurrection. And there are still those who try to suppress the gospel through bullying and intimidation. None of that has gone away. It's what the apostles faced. It's what their disciples, Matthew's readers, would have faced. And it's what we face still today. Nothing has changed. And that can be intimidating, can it not? That can be scary. In fact, it's scary enough that sometimes 
Christ's enemies win, don't they? They succeed in silencing us. They drive us out of the temple and back into the upper room where we lock the doors and hope that no one finds us or bothers us. You know what Matthew, why he writes this passage? He writes this passage to remind you that Jesus wins. To remind you that his enemies cannot triumph. He writes this passage as an encouragement to say it doesn't matter what people say, what lies they might spread about Jesus, or what they might try to do to you, so long as you pursue your mission, the gospel will advance because Jesus is on the loose. He is uncontained. He cannot be stopped. He triumphs. Now maybe that doesn't mean that everyone who hears the gospel will be saved. Perhaps the lies will work on some. But to paraphrase John 1, but to all who do receive Him, who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. For they are born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Again, Jesus triumphs. As he says in John 10, 27-29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one can snatch Jesus' sheep out of his hand. He is the good shepherd. He will have every one of them. So next week, we're going to take a look at the Great Commission. We're going to explore the meaning of this mission that Jesus is going to send his church on. And the question that I urge you to consider as you prepare yourself for that message is this. Will I rise to that challenge? Will I hear my Lord's command and contend for his glory? Will I press forward in this mission with the confidence given to me in the resurrection that at the end of the day, no matter the obstacle, I know that Jesus wins. Let's pray.